Listener Production. Now, here's an interesting job title, Intimacy Coordinator. Do you know what that is, Katrina? Do you know, I actually do, because during COVID, I got into this super trash show called Sex Life on Netflix, and I read an article about it that they had used an intimacy coach on set, and then I just went down a rabbit hole, and I became really fascinated by it. Yeah, well, it's a new job that's been introduced on film sets, and... There's been a bit of debate about them recently because actor Sean Bean from Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings came out saying that intimacy coordinators reduce the natural way lovers behave into a technical exercise. Mm, I think, though, that it can coordinate what could be quite an awkward, um, you know, if you don't have chemistry with someone or whatever, it shows you sort of like a choreographed dance how to do it. I mean, Emma Thompson and Amanda Seyfried are among the high-profile actresses to speak up. They say intimacy coordinators make sets safer and more comfortable. Sean Bean's comment is assuming that he wishes to perform the sex he would have on screen. That's called porn. Mm, All right. We're getting into that in today's briefing. Antoinette Latouf actually interviews an intimacy coordinator. You heard a bit of her there. We'll find out exactly what they do on sets and how much shooting a sex scene has changed over the last 20 years. First, here are today's headlines. It's Friday, August 26. The Prime Minister has announced a royal commission into the robo-debt scandal. Who was responsible for it and why it was necessary, how concerns were handled, how the scheme affected individuals and the financial cost to government and measures to prevent this ever happening again. So RoboDebt was the automated Centrelink debt recovery program. Hopefully you're not personally familiar with it, but it affected so many people that maybe Mm. you are. It ran from 2015 to 2019 And it used data matching algorithms to identify the overpayment of social security benefits, but it wrongly accused more than 380,000 people of owing the government money. It was eventually found to be unlawful after a class action in the federal court and the government was then forced to hand over $1.8 billion. The opposition leader has been out slamming this royal commission, though. I I just think it's a witch hunt. That's Peter Dutton on 2GB calling it a witch hunt. Um, I don't agree that it's a witch hunt, but I'm also not convinced that it's the most important issue to hold a royal commission into. I mean, that class action in the federal court seems to have done a very good job in showing how much damage was done and to whom it was done. And the scheme no longer exists. Compensation has been paid out to a lot of those people I guess what it might unearth, though, are some important lessons about automation, which I imagine is going to continue to play an important role in administering our social services payments. Yeah, I think kind of like the pink bat scheme, I think anything where there is a loss of life involved, and there's certainly many families around Australia who say that their loved ones took their own lives because they were so distressed by this, so they're attributing the death of their loved ones to this scheme. I think that they want answers and and potentially that could provide, you know, some sort of resolution maybe for, for them. But the other thing is too that... This could be another reputational test for Scott Morrison, who was social services minister at the time, and many lawyers say that that he should appear and give evidence at this commission. Yeah, he was, I have to point out, one of many people to hold that portfolio during 
those years. But yeah, it could be more bad news for him. Qantas will be increasing airfares to deal with fuel costs and get back in the black. Yeah, this is going to make them even more popular. Um, Domestic fares will go up by 10%, international fares by 20%. Alan Joyce, the CEO, says the changes are needed to help Qantas return to profit after a third year of massive losses was announced yesterday. But it is expected to return to profit next year because demand is soaring. People are not just flying again. They brought a level of enthusiasm for travel that was beyond our best projections. Revenue intakes for leisure travel around 125% of pre-COVID levels. Is that kind of like blaming us for being too enthusiastic? (laughs) Is that what that is? Uh, Qantas apologised earlier this week for delays, cancellations and baggage issues in recent months with a $50 voucher for frequent flyers. Yeah, I mean, there has been a little bit of blaming of customers saying they weren't travel ready. That's why there were delays at airports, which was absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, I guess that soaring demand actually was really about him saying, look, we've just lost billions of dollars over the last three years, but we are going to finally make some money. But it's funny this week for Qantas that at the start of the week, as you just mentioned, they were giving out $50 vouchers for frequent flyers, which was an apology for all the problems of the last few months. Then they end the week by jacking up fares. So... Mm. (laughs) What was the point of that $50? It was just a tokenistic PR move and it's obviously not about the customers, it's about the money, but that's understandable because they've lost so much of it over the last three years. And can I also add a PR move that's not so simple to get? I just kind of assumed that that $50 voucher would pop up as perhaps a credit in my frequent flyer account. But no, you have to download the Qantas app. It has to be the very latest version and then follow all of these steps to get a code so that you can then redeem that code. So it's not as simple Mm. as just getting that 50 bucks. No, it was a soulless PR move and then it was completely undone by jacking up fares at the end of the week. The results of the first fixed-site pill-testing service are in. So this is Canberra's new health and drug checking clinic. It's looked at 58 samples and it's found the majority were tainted with other substances. So ketamine, MDMA, heroin, methamphetamine and cocaine were among the drugs tested and the researchers found 40% of cocaine samples contained no cocaine while I found one instance where someone thought they had methamphetamine, but it was actually sugar, and researchers found one sample that completely stumped them. It was a drug called pluroexetamine, and this is a compound for which there's almost nothing known in the scientific literature. It's a really unusual drug. That's Associate Professor Malcolm McLeod on 2GB there. Nearly a third of people chose to ditch their drugs after getting them checked. Yeah, now that's actually the most important fact of that whole story. That's what it's about. So people buy something, they're not sure exactly what it is or how pure it is. When they get some more information, they are then informed Mm -hmm. so they can make decisions that will make them safer. So I would say that's a success. I'll be very interesting to see if this becomes a permanent facility and if other states around the country create their own facilities like this one. Queensland teachers who refused to get vaccinated will have their pay docked. Mm, I cannot believe this. So this disciplinary action is affecting close to 1,000 teachers, teachers' age, admin staff and cleaners who refused to get vaccinated. 
they'll lose between $25 and $90 a week from their paychecks over 18 weeks. So the Queensland government is defending the move. They say that other states sacked their teachers and Queensland didn't do that. And this disciplinary action was always on the cards. And the federal aged care minister's weighed in too. Uh, she's backed it, saying teachers are just facing the consequences of their choice and other staff deserve a safe workplace. Well, two wrongs don't make a right just because other states sacked teachers for not getting a jab doesn't really mean this is the right thing to do to dock their pay. I mean, the vaccine protects the individual against severe disease. It's been much less effective in stopping transmission. So I don't understand how it's fair to punish this small number of people who don't want to get it. And another story um, on this one that blows my mind is Novak Djokovic. He's not going to be able to play the US Open um, in the coming week because of his vaccination status. Yeah, so he's uh, issued a tweet saying, sadly, I will not be able to travel to New York this time for the US Open. I'll keep in good shape and positive spirits and wait for an opportunity to compete again. So as a foreigner, he's not allowed to travel into the US without being vaccinated. And authorities in the US almost um, actually relaxed those rules, but they decided not to, and the tournament gets underway on Monday. So I just think this is is really unfair and really sad. He's going to miss this. He missed the Australian Open, as we know. At least the Americans made it clearer before he got there, you know, compared to the bamboozling nonsense that happened here when we had that last-minute ministerial intervention when he was already in the country. Yeah, but it does beg a belief, as you say, Tom, that in a in a country where COVID, you know, cases are still pretty high, if he tests negative, why does it matter whether a fit, healthy tennis player should compete or not? Yeah, and he's 35, so he's not going to have that many years left of his career. Along with Serena, he's one of the greatest tennis players of all time. He's neck and neck with Nadal um, for Grand Slams, and I just think it's a, it's a real loss for the sport, a real loss for the Australian Open earlier this year, and now the US Open. The only bit of silver lining is that (laughs) Djokovic was the one thing standing in the way of Nick Kyrgios and the Wimbledon Trophy, so um, might be nice to have him out of the way for the US Open as well, given Kyrgios is in good form. All right, Antoinette Latouf is going to jump in in just a sec. She's going to tell us all about the world of intimacy coaching. So, have you ever heard of an intimacy coordinator? Don't worry if you haven't, because until very recently, I hadn't either. So, it's a person hired on a film or TV set to help with actors and production staff navigate the sex scenes. And it's been making headlines recently because Game of Thrones star Sean Bean said they should be scrapped because they, and to quote, spoil spontaneity. So lots of actors, mainly women, hit back at the claims, saying, if anything, they're needed now more than ever, given the Me Too era. Chloe Dallymore is an intimacy coordinator. She's worked with a bunch of stars like Sam Worthington, Tony Collette and Idris Elba. Chloe, thanks so much for joining us. So is an intimacy coordinator essentially a stunt coordinator, but for sex? You absolutely nailed it. So you wouldn't give two actors a knife each and say, look, you've got to have this fight. One of you has to die at the end. Just go for it and we'll see what happens. Something's going to go horribly wrong. It's going to look unauthentic and someone's likely to get hurt. Same thing with simulated sex scene and intimate content. If you've just met the person, none of that intimacy or simulated sex is going to look anything like authentic. 
And I'm interested to know, is this a relatively new role or have these jobs been around for ages? So it's become a more formalised role in about the last five years in Australia. The work has been done by movement directors and stunt professionals in the past where directors have said, oh, I just don't quite know how to make this scene look authentic. So those of us with sort of biomechanics understanding have been brought in But now it's become a much more formalised, structured role and is now embedded in occupational health and safety on almost every set in Australia. And has that been because of the Me Too movement? It's not because of. I think the role would have occurred anyway because we are there for everyone, for children, for adults, for every um, gender orientation, for all cultures. So... Me Too had a had a deep focus in women. Mm. I think the Me Too movement projected the role of the intimacy coordinator and director to the forefront and catapulted the development of our role to about a two-year process rather than what might have taken 10 years. So deeply thankful to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> Sounds weird, but, you know, <laughs> got to learn from everyone, right? So I'm keen to know how spontaneous and natural and free-flowing these scenes are, particularly when it comes to things like sex, because uh, every, lots of people are talking about intimacy coordinators since Sean Bean made those comments about, oh, we should just, you know, let things happen spontaneously. Yes. So from the outset, Sean Bean has never worked with an intimacy coordinator. So I just want to flag that because to me, that's like a toddler saying they don't like a certain food and they've never tried the food. (laughs) So if you've not tried something, I think it's very difficult to make educated comments about it. So that from the outset, Sean Bean is also assuming that he is always going to perform heteronormative sex, Mm. simulated sex on scene. Last week, I was on set to navigate three oral sex scenes between two males. The actors were of differing ages and gender orientations and they had many questions to ask and they needed someone to help them navigate that scene so that they could have the open conversations about what the characters would be doing because this is about character choice, not personal choice. So the characters that we are portraying on scene are making choices that we as humans, as actors, would not necessarily make in real life. So Sean Bean's comment is assuming that he wishes to perform the sex he would have on screen. That's called porn and that's not what we do as actors. And I'm keen to get a bit of an idea um, or set the scene of what it looks like when there mm. is an intimate scene involved. Because Emma Thompson says, you know, you're surrounded by a bunch of blokes carrying things. And she says it's not a comfortable situation, <laughs> full stop. So give us an idea oh. of what it, these, these, these sets look, feel and smell like. Because as, as an audience, we just see mm. the love and lust part. Mm, I love that you've just brought up about smell because, yes, yeah, some of the sets, <laughs> they can be old buildings. They can have all sorts of past lives themselves. So in any of these scenes, we try to make them a closed set. They should be a closed set if there's any nudity or simulated sex, which means that we have the essential only crew. However, 
as everyone always says when they go on a set, I can't believe how many people it takes to make this content. Mm. So you will have a minimum of 10 people in that room. And then outside of the room, you've got at least another 10 or so people, hair, makeup, continuity, props, all checking that their departments are also running smoothly within that space. So you've got 20, sometimes 30 people watching whatever is occurring in that room. So there is nothing romantic. There is nothing sexy about any of those spaces. Everyone is trying to do their job and it's a workplace. There's nothing that incites passion or romance or, in those, um, on those closed sets. Or spontaneity. There is no spontaneity. Actually, sometimes actors, particularly male actors, will say, I'm really worried. This is the first time I'm doing an intimate scene. I'm worried about getting an erection. And it's a really great question. And first of all, I explain to them that an erection is quite normal because it's not an emotional response. Also, it's unlikely in that environment that you will have an erection and they go, oh, really? And then afterwards they go, oh, man, there was no way I was Mm. having an erection with all of those guys around me. So um, there's nothing that incites a natural, romantic, simulated sex environment that Sean Bean is implying we might drop into. There's also been a lot of talk about consent, on set. Mm. Um, But how much of a role does consent play? Because I imagine if you've landed like a big role and are earning millions, Mm. don't you just have to do what Mm. the director and script require of you? So consent is at the core of everything, right? It's a human issue that has come to the forefront and you get to consent whether you want to even audition for that role. So Our intimacy guidelines that we now have in Australia that were crafted in 2018 means that there is a responsibility on producers from the absolute outset if there is nudity or simulated sex or what we call hyperexposure, so a scene where someone's body might be seen in a way that invites a deep gaze, for example, a dead body on on a morgue slab or a birth, they have to alert all of the agents that that is the content that is in there so that the actors from the outset can make Mm. a choice whether they wish to even audition for that role. So our responsibility as actors is to be informed and decide, do I, will I in the future, do I now consent to being involved in that kind of content? And do you think um, more mandatory intimacy coordinators would have stopped some of those high profile sexual harassment cases both here and in Hollywood or at you know at least some of them yeah so look what we do is in the workplace so we are there for what occurs in the rehearsal space on set and in performance of live performance so some people are going to do weird stuff in their normal life outside of the workplace. There's nothing that we as intimacy coordinators can do in regards to that. However, our process of working with actors and directors and crew, because the crew are really important too, they need to have a voice within all of this as well. We can put processes in place that mean that if any of these breaches of your boundaries and consent 
occur in the workplace, there is a known process that people can go through and that they won't be shut down. Because I think that's the main thing in the past. These question marks have occurred because often the perpetrators have been people with power. And as we know, Every relationship, every group dynamic has a power hierarchy and those at the top of that hierarchy will always wield power energetically and so that's where the imbalance can occur and that's why process is really important in regards to consent and reporting. Wow, so that was some really fascinating insights from Intimacy Coordinator Chloe Dallimore. And it certainly took some of that steam away from those famous Bridgerton sex scenes. All right, in your feed tomorrow is the weekend briefing. Jamila Rizvi is the host. Jamila, who are you interviewing this week? My guest this weekend is Navo Zissen, who is a queer author and speaker and performer and activist. Navo is absolutely fascinating. They were assigned female at birth, but by the age of four, they just knew that that wasn't right. Navo told me that they used to kick and scream to be taken out of the girls' section at the shops. They didn't like all the pink and the sparkles. And when people would call Navo a drama queen, Navo would say, I'm a drama king. I think that gives you just a little bit of insight into this tremendously articulate, witty and funny human being who now teaches workshops in schools and in, in workplaces about trans identities. This was such an interesting and eye-opening chat. I really hope you take a moment and listen. All right, that's your weekend briefing tomorrow. Also on Sunday, we'll have another episode of the Science Briefing in your feed. It's a great new podcast from our team here at Listener. And speaking of our team, big thank you to the hardworking crew that bring the briefing together every single day. Executive producer Dan Mullins, news producer Eleanor Harrison-Dengate, Brooke Loudner, as well as our socials team, Poppy Manzi and Sarah Boll, and our editor, Matt Kuzkuri. Listener.